Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to the New Books Network. I am your host, Stephen Dozman. The world of theater performances is often thought of as being composed of wealthy persons who received elite educations at art institutions. Also, they could be observed by a small, wealthy elite at exclusive and expensive gatherings. Theater is seen as an insular, elitist practice for and by a select few. However, this image of theater is deeply misleading especially as more performances are available for download, and many smaller, more open institutions invest more in theater productions. One place that might surprise a lot of people is the popularity of performances staged by incarcerated persons and presented in and behind the walls of prisons. Theater is a social and communal practice, so making it happen within an institution that is not only isolated from the outside world, but is designed to isolate those within, will naturally come with various challenges, and also raises various questions on the nature of both theater and the carceral system. These are the questions Ashley Lucas addresses in her recent book, Prison Theater and the Global Crisis of Incarceration, featuring a combination of her own firsthand experience as a director of prison theater, interviews with those involved in the world of prison theater, and scholarly research, The book is a unique combination of genres that occupies some very interesting intersections and is able to explore some very difficult topics, from questions of artistic expression, the nature of community, and what hope in a hopeless situation looks like. Ashley Lucas is an associate professor of theater and drama in the residential college at the University of Michigan, and is also the former director of the Prison Creative Arts Project. Ashley Lucas, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Yeah, so we always like to have guests introduce themselves at the beginning. So could you tell us a bit about yourself and your background? Sure. I I am a theater professor by training, and I teach theater at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. I also am a person who does a lot of work in prisons, so I'm the director I'm the former director of the Prison Creative Arts Project, which is a program that does arts programming in all 27 adult correctional facilities in the state of Michigan. And I'm also the co-principal investigator for a research project at the U of M, which is called the Carceral State Project, and brings together about 75 faculty, students, and community researchers to work on issues connected to things like policing, immigration detention, and prisons um, throughout the United States. So I'm a person who's very concerned with what's happening to people inside prisons and after they come home from prisons. And I'm also a, a playwright and a theater maker and somebody who thinks very seriously about how culture might be able to change the world. Excellent. So to begin, I'd like to ask about your own experience with the carceral system, which you write early in the book, started for you at a very young age with your father being incarcerated. Can you tell us a bit about this background and how this very long and personal relationship with the prison system informs your work, both in this book and your broader work with prison theater and activism? I think the things that happened to us in our childhood always shape our worldview in ways that are very deep inside us, that are core to who we are. And I love my father so, so much. And he ended up going to prison when I was 15. And that was not something that we expected. We had never had a family member who had been in prison before. I never dreamed that this world would be a part of my life, much less that it would become the focus of of what I do in my career and in my art. But the fact that the government could step into our lives and take my father away for 20 years, which is how long he served in Texas prisons, so shattered my understanding 
of the world, the understanding that I'd had before that happened to us, that I was never able to see the world in the same way again. If it could happen to us, it could happen to anybody. And I think a great many people in most countries in the world fail to see the ways in which the carceral system actually has the ability to intervene in anybody's life at any time. So I, um, having come to that new understanding of what my life and the world meant, I wanted to figure out how to process that in a way that was healthy for me as a person. And I do that through the theater, through my writing and performing. And I also wanted to get to know more people who were living inside prisons and their families and the people who had come home and built lives after surviving that kind of, of really devastating trauma. And that, that has led me to a really rich and interesting place in my work as a scholar and my work as an artist. So, um, yeah, I think that sums up how I came into the work and why it matters so much to me. Early in the book, you point to a very long history of prisoners putting on various sorts of performances. And yet, in your experience as an academic, you report encountering very little sustained research on the topic. Given how many questions prison theater would seem to raise about performance and its relationship to its conditions of production, this area would seem ripe for study, and yet apparently that's not the case. What do you think this absence says about our understanding of both our carceral system in the theater performance world and our inability to seriously connect the two? Well, for starters, it's just really hard to get inside prisons to see what's happening. Prisons are deliberately constructed to keep certain people in and keep the rest of the world out. So it's hard to know honestly what's happening inside a prison unless you're directly connected to one. And even then, people inside are never at full liberty to tell you the fullness and the detail of what's happening in their lives inside the prison because the state owns their life. And if they say something that would be distressing to the mechanisms of the authoritarian state, then they put themselves in danger. And and they possibly put you in a position where you wouldn't be allowed to visit or communicate with them anymore. So the fact that theater programming is happening in prisons throughout the US and throughout the entire world, and has been for hundreds of years, if not thousands of years, um, that's a, a really extraordinarily interesting thing Uh, Unlike visual art and creative writing, which are also things that that have a very rich and diverse life inside prisons, the theater requires other people. It requires liveness. It requires an audience. It often requires an ensemble. It's not a thing that can be done in isolation, under cover of night, in little snatches of time when you are by yourself and have the ability to do that work. It, It requires community. And community is something that prisons very actively work to destroy and to inhibit. So the fact that that this is happening is super interesting. And I think there is now a growing body of literature on what's happening with theater in prisons. But I had extraordinary access and privilege in getting to travel to 10 different countries throughout the world to see as much theater in prisons as I could and to be able to write about that comparatively. The vast majority of writing about theater in prison is about just one prison theater program that a particular person had access to. And it's often, that kind of writing often comes from the people who are actually the practitioners making the theater work with folks inside, often professional theater people or scholars like me. And it's more rare that people go to all the trouble that it takes to travel inside to prisons and see what other folks are doing um, and to be able to do that in multiple sites. I also think that the theater world writ large has, has created a kind of elitist set of standards, particularly in the United States and some other Western countries. This is not the case in Latin America um, and in Africa, the theater is much more populist People expect theater to be a part of the daily lives of working class people, and it's cheap, it's accessible, 
it's a thing that people see as a vibrant part of their everyday culture. And most of the folks I know in the United States feel like the theater is a thing that you should have to buy an expensive ticket for and sit in the dark quietly until it's over and clap at the end when the curtain goes down. And it's not as intimately woven into the public life of people in the United States as it is in other places. So if theater, it feels like an elitist activity to a lot of people, including theater critics, then it doesn't make a whole lot of sense that they would pay attention to folks in prisons who are making theater, much less go to a whole lot of extra trouble to see about them. So I'm hoping that more public conversations about this work can help people to understand the beauty of what people are doing with prison theater and um, to take it seriously as an art form. One thing you note early in the book is that writing about prison life comes with various methodological difficulties. You don't have easy access to many of your subjects, and when talking with them, there are various difficulties in communication that make it hard for everyone to be open and honest with one another. Can you give us a sense of some of these difficulties and the tactics you employed to try and piece this book together in the most honest and thorough way possible? It's an interesting conundrum because the folks in prison have a lot to say. And what they told me when I did get to speak to them was often quite beautiful and and really lovely. Part of the problem with doing this work for me was that I, I never really got permission from the prison authorities themselves to interview people outright. So I was basically asking questions on the sidelines of rehearsals or in a reception after a performance that had happened in a prison, or I was talking to people in the free world who I could interview in greater depth. But a lot of the the methodological problem of doing this work in prisons is that you can't very often get permission to do a humanities-based kind of research project in a prison and really sit down and talk to people in a protected space of time. So I was always kind of talking to people on the sidelines where there was a lot of other stuff going on in the prison, which is an interesting challenge in and of itself. Um, There was only one instance in my seven years of research where the, the prison actually gave me permission to do a kind of group interview with the folks in a a prison in Oregon who had put on a production of The Winter's Tale, which was really a remarkably good piece of theater. And uh, the day after I had seen their closing night performance, I was allowed to go back in with a documentary filmmaker who filmed a two-hour conversation that we had. And when I finally sat down to write the book, I was able to take a lot of really specific information from the men in the cast of The Winter's Tale, who had spoken to me for two hours. And I, it made me really wish that I'd had that kind of access to folks in other prisons, because I just never got that kind of space and time or the ability to record what people said precisely. I was usually kind of taking notes in my head, and then I would run out of the prison as fast as I could at the end of whatever event I had witnessed, try to get to a quiet place where I could jot down notes in my journal as quickly as I could so I wouldn't lose the fine details of what I had seen. And because that's a pretty unreliable method for conducting research, and also because I wanted very much to make sure that incarcerated people felt that I had represented their life and their work honestly, and not in a way that was misleading or that felt like like I had portrayed them in a, an unfair or thoughtless light, because I think a lot of writing about people in prison does that, whether it intends to do so or not. I, I wanted to avoid that mistake very, very much. So I spent a lot of time drafting the chapters of the book early and then sending them into prisons and to people who had come home from prison to vet those chapters and give me feedback and make sure that what I had said was accurate before it ever went into print. One of the first performances you look at is a performance of Shakespeare's A Winter's Tale. And this is one of the first of 
the many references to Shakespeare that you'll use uh, throughout the book as examples. So why beyond the obvious reasons of notoriety is Shakespeare so popular for prison theater programs? So Shakespeare tends to happen in prisons frequently, in part because the people who are running different theater projects in prisons are coming from a background in Shakespeare themselves. There are a lot of really interesting Shakespeare companies in the world that have decided to go into prisons to make theater. And some of those folks will tell you that they do Shakespeare in prison because often you have limited rehearsal time and each week, which means you might have to rehearse for six months before you do a play. But in the outside world, you could have done in a few weeks rehearsal. And Shakespeare is something that you can really sink your teeth into for a very extended period of time and not get bored and not run out of really rich and interesting material. Shakespeare's a great playwright. He's worth working on. Um, That's a good reason to do Shakespeare in prison. One of the more interesting reasons to do Shakespeare in prison that is specific to working in prisons itself is that people don't tend to censor Shakespeare. Shakespeare is held up as a cultural icon in many, many parts of the world. He's considered untouchable in many ways by the censors. So despite the fact that Shakespeare is full of cursing and sex and murder and other kinds of violence that would not be allowed in a lot of prison theater work because of the censorship of the prison authorities, people will let you get away with literally murder on stage in Shakespeare in ways that they wouldn't somewhere else. And that that makes... Uh, There are so many barriers that you have to cross to get things done in prison, but having a significant one, like the choice of your material, removed as a barrier, that it's just not going to be a problem, is one less giant hurdle that you have to cross to pull off a production inside a prison. One of the difficulties in putting on prison theater performances is you generally have performers of one gender, which can be difficult as a problem to circumnavigate. What are some of the difficulties in cross-gender casting, and how do you see different groups and communities working through this? People have done an incredible, incredibly diverse set of different things to address that. So some companies will be working in uh, a prison that just has men or women, and they'll bring in actors of the opposite gender to play those roles in the actual play. So members of the, the theater company in the free world that supports the work in the prison will join the folks in the prison theater workshop on stage. In other cases, uh, particularly with Shakespeare, the practitioners in, in conversation with the folks in the play will make the choice to use single gender casting. And I've seen everything from dressing people of the opposite gender in full drag where they're meant to really look like a person of the opposite gender or to be a funny sort of blown up representation of gender. I have also seen plays, uh, for instance, when I saw the Prison Performing Arts Company in St. Louis, Missouri, do a production they called Hip Hop Hamlet. The, The male actors who were playing Gertrude and Ophelia did not look like women. They were not meant to look like women. They looked like men who were in dresses, but they looked like people that we were meant to take seriously in the world of the play. And they played with the masculine energy of those actors in some really interesting ways to bring out rich aspects of those characters that I hadn't seen before. I did hear once in my research a really disturbing story told by a a director of a theater company that had done a different production of Hamlet in a men's prison and used single gender casting and then had to abandon that because the man who had been cast as the player queen in Hamlet had been brutally attacked by other people in the prison as a result of of whatever it was those other people in the prison perceived about his gender in him agreeing to play a female role. And then for many years that followed that, that prison theater company did not do cross-gender casting in a prison. So the, the consequences of these choices can be very 
serious and real. And I think whenever we make any kind of intervention in a prison as outside volunteers, we have to think really seriously about the fact that our choices will affect us to a certain degree. But the choices that we make inside of a prison have incredibly high potential consequences for the people who actually have to live inside there every day, who are literally held captive and cannot escape or move on from the consequences of the things that happen to them in that space. So we have to be really, really thoughtful and do everything in, in deep contemplative consultation with the folks who are in the prison who are going to have to live that reality every day. But that said, I think the cross-gender casting thing can work really well if the prison theater culture is positioned well enough to keep those people in the cast protected. And, and by that, I mean that the people in prison in the theater company have to be viewed by the rest of the prison population, including the staff, as people who are doing something interesting and exciting and admirable. People have to want the theater to happen. And then they don't intervene, in my observation, in ways that are really destructive. One thing you explore is the way theater can function as a place of emotional vulnerability within a context that is generally very hostile to emotional expression. Part of this is the actual plays themselves often give inmates the language to tap into some of their struggles as incarcerated persons as well as creating a series of spaces and moments where they can let their guard down a bit. Can you explain some of the emotional opportunities theater provides incarcerated persons? Yeah, that's actually one of my favorite things to be able to talk about in this work, or at least one of my favorite things to be able to observe as somebody who does theater work with folks in prison. So my students at the Prison Creative Arts Project who go into prisons to lead weekly theater workshops and all of this, of course, is pre-pandemic. We can't do things in quite the same way now that that the world is on fire. We're not allowed to go into prisons physically, so we've transformed that work into correspondence work. But back when we could go into prison for the vast majority of our organization's history, you can see something really extraordinary take place in the improv theater workshops that we do. Uh, it happens in the women's prisons also, but it's more dramatically visible on the bodies of the men with whom we work. So when they come into the workshop, especially if it's already been running for a few weeks and people are really comfortable with each other and excited to be there, people walk in the door with uh, these bodies that are playful, bodies that are ready to move. You can see that people are relaxed. They're having fun. They are... Uh, they're ready to be open in all of their body language. And then at the end of the workshop, when we have to say goodbye after an hour and a half or two hours of this really engaging, emotionally rich work, you can often see that the men have to put back on kind of the armor of the prison, that in order to go out and face everybody else on the yard or in the dormitories or the chow hall or wherever they're headed next, they have to get really big again. They have to inhabit their bodies in this way that says, don't mess with me. I'm a person to be taken very seriously, perhaps a person to be feared. You can actually watch their, their bodies tense up and take up more space in the moment where they have to leave the room. And, and that says something terrible about the daily reality of what it is to be in prison and alternately something really glorious about the fact that theater can have that much of an impact to, to undo for the brief time that we are together, the space of tension and fear and uh, performed aggressiveness that keeps a person safe in as uncertain and turbulent an environment as a prison. So the, the emotional work goes along with that physicality that in prison, it's usually not really safe to tell the rest of the world a whole lot about your private life. Um, it's kind of like being in middle school. And I really, really don't want to infantilize people who are in prison. I just mean that 
for a lot of us, middle school was a time that was incredibly emotionally stressful because you're trapped in the same place with the same damn people every single day. And however those people choose to uh, to give you a hard time, to mock you, to make comments about your appearance or your intelligence or your gender, or the whatever it is that people want to discuss about you, they get to decide what's up for grabs. They get to have the same kind of grading conversations all the time. And you don't have a larger world that you get to explore socially or physically. You're sort of trapped in the same place every day, day in and day out, except prison is worse because you don't get to go home at the end of the day. You don't have a kind of separate world outside of that place where you spend your daytime hours. It's all the same people all the time. So if you have any kind of personality issues or um, or debate with a person who happens to live in that space also, you have to deal with them all the time. And that that's a really, really hard way to live. And I think the theater gives us a chance to get beyond that. It not only introduces new people into the prison so that you do have a different social world, but it introduces new ideas, different ways of thinking. It allows you to, to be something else for that short space of time. You can be an actor, you can be a director, you can be a playwright instead of being the thing that the state and so many people in the world have decided is most important about you, which is a, a living representation of the worst thing you ever did. Another thing you explore is how theater creates communities within a community, as all those involved with the performance will often develop unique bonds with one another. And reading this, I was reminded kind of of the group of theater kids in high school that would develop, although this is obviously a very different version of that. So can you explain the sort of groups you see developing around theater performances? Yeah, I think one of the things that's really that touched me more than I had realized that it would was how those groups reach beyond the immediate world of the prison. So I walked in knowing that it was going to be a really big deal for people to make theater together, because that's just true anywhere. All of us who do theater know very intimately the fact that you get really attached to the other people who you see across time in rehearsals for a production that is very meaningful to you and that you just end up spending a lot of time doing a lot of emotional and physical labor with other people when you're engaged in a production. And it makes sense that you become attached and uh, emotionally connected to the other people who engage in that work with you across time. So I knew that the theater companies themselves would have really meaningful and interesting bonds inside the prison. What I hadn't quite seen coming to the same degree was how much the work meant to the staff in a lot of these prisons. In that production of The Winter's Tale that I was talking to you about, the, um, the staff at the prison were so remarkably changed that many of them started going to see theater in the free world. They had never been theater people before. They'd never seen theater until they saw it in the prison where they worked. And then they became people who loved the theater. The men in that company told me about one staff member who actually spent like $1,300, and prison guards do not make a whole lot of money, to travel to New York and see Broadway plays because she got so excited by being an audience member of the theater that was happening in the prison. And likewise, the, the theater for so many of these folks inside became one of the only ways that they got to see people from the free world, not just the volunteers who were coming into the prison to make the theater with them, but audience members and even family members who had been too frightened or too overwhelmed to visit them in prison during their confinement. Some of those folks felt like coming to the prison for a visit can feel very heavy because you have to think about what to talk about and Everybody who's involved in a situation where you have a loved one in prison has a fair amount of trauma to deal with surrounding that. And the idea of showing up to visit somebody who you might not have been in really good touch with for a while, perhaps for years, and then having to grapple with your family trauma as a result of that visit 
it's a lot to ask of people. But to invite somebody to the prison to see a play is intriguing. It could be fun. It's really interesting. And then if you visit in conjunction with that performance, you have something else to talk about besides the worst things that ever happened in your family's life. And, and the theater really strengthened the bonds that a lot of these folks had to their families and um, gave them something to share. The families in the free world could read the scripts of the folks uh, who were working on theater in inside. They could sometimes bring outside people to witness and be able to say to your your nearest and dearest friends and family members, look, this person in prison who I love is doing something beautiful. I can show that to you. And that that's a huge gift because for those of us who have a loved one in prison, it's really hard out here to point the people in your life who don't understand your loved one's incarceration towards a fuller understanding of that person who's doing time, that something deeper and more encompassing and holistic than how that person represents the crime that sent them to prison. So to be able to say, here's my sister, here's my cousin, here's my brother, here's my husband on stage in a play and look at what this beautiful person can do. That's an incredible gift that makes community and a sense of shared experience possible for people in the free world to be connected to people in prison. Another way you see prison theater helping develop communities and connections is in how it can help incarcerated persons reconnect with their families, not only because it gives family members an opportunity to come see their loved ones, but as you were just alluding to, it gives them a sort of bridge that people on both sides of the prison walls can understand to some degree. Can you tell us a bit more about what you see going on here? I think one of the things that I so wish I'd had with my own father while he was in prison was a way to follow something that was happening in his life. So I especially in the early years of his incarceration, I spent so much time reading other people's prison memoirs and narratives about what happens to people in prison to try to get a clear picture of how my father lived every day. Because when I would ask him what he was up to on a day-to-day basis at the prison, he would just say, oh, it's too boring. I, I don't even know. I mean, he would evade the question in these ways that were super frustrating to me. And I know that part of it was that he didn't want me to have a good picture of the bleakness of his existence in there. And there's no telling what, what hardships he was protecting me from as his younger child um, in not telling me what he saw and lived from day to day. But I also think the thing that he would say about how it's just so boring was a, a kind of truth as well, that prison is a really boring place for most people. You can't do the things you want to do. You don't get to make choices about what you're going to do all day long. But if he had been involved in something like a theater program, he would have told me about it. He would have given me a lot of rich detail about what that was like because he would have been excited. He would have had something going on that would have made him want to discuss it with me. And there wasn't much about his life in prison that he wanted to discuss. So what I've observed in other families is that uh, the theater is, is the occasion for a lot of other things that you can then talk about with your loved ones. So in the chapter where I write about this production of A Winter's Tale, the, the most remarkable thing that happened to that group of theater people, as far as I'm concerned, was that they all got adopted into the same family. So there's a woman named Mama Sharon, who is the mother of one of the men who was in that play, but who also, upon coming to see the play, realized that there were all of these other men who didn't have family who were able to come to see them or who didn't have any family at all anymore for whatever reason. And she decided to adopt the entire theater troupe. And she started writing multiple letters per year to all of these men. She would send everybody a birthday card and a Christmas card and photos of the free world, which is a really big deal because people inside desperately miss seeing what the outside world looks like. And 
they all became a real and meaningful family. And the presence of those men in Mama Sharon's life came to mean just as much to her and her son um, and her sister, who also adopted all of these men, as it did to the men who didn't have family, who now felt like they had someone who cared about them. Mama Sharon had been living a life where she felt kind of isolated and unimportant and not valued. And the men in the prison did for her the same things that she was doing for them. They made her feel loved and seen and recognized and supported. And like she had a deeper set of family connections than she'd had before they discovered each other. And the theater is what brought all of those people together. Moving along, you talk about hip-hop theater, which in the examples you explore often involves translating classic plays such as Shakespeare's Hamlet into a more contemporary hip-hop variant. This naturally comes with certain challenges, one of which is, interestingly enough, a hesitation on the part of the performers to participate. Why do you think incarcerated performers are hesitant to take part in this sort of performance? Well, in the case of Hip Hop Hamlet, which is the the production that I describe where they did hip hop work in a Missouri prison, I think there was immense hesitation among the men in the theater company to do the work in hip hop because they weren't experts in hip hop. I think we make a lot of assumptions about who's in prison and what their um, what their musical tastes might be, what their cultural references are. And so the the white men in that theater troupe felt like they were being culturally excluded or sidelined by being asked to do something based in hip hop. And the black men felt like they were being read as experts in hip hop when many of them didn't feel that way. So some of them were comfortable with the idea and some of them were not. And it's it's certainly not true that just because you're Black, you're capable of spinning rhymes or rapping or whatever. And uh, and I think they resented the implication that the, the white theater people coming in to make this play with them were making uh, that, that those folks assumed that the Black men in the theater troupe in particular would have uh, a, both a proclivity to be able to do that kind of work and an affinity to want to do it. And that those assumptions are just not, not necessarily true. And you can be, of course, a person who really enjoys listening to hip hop, but who doesn't feel capable of producing it for themselves. So uh, all of those cultural things were in the mix when they developed this first production of hip hop Hamlet. And eventually everybody got on board. They got really excited about it, but it is an incredible challenge, right? To say to people, okay, you're not necessarily comfortable in the language of hip hop, but we're going to ask you to speak a play entirely in rhyming couplets over some pre-recorded hip hop beats. And you have to have a kind of attitude that goes with hip hop to pull this off in a way that makes it cool and not cheesy. So that's a big ask. And then Shakespeare is a big ask. It's a lot to ask people to translate which these men did, they translated the words of Shakespeare into hip hop language and then performed it. So all of that was a a huge task to set upon those folks. Later, a few years later, the same company, Prison Performing Arts, took the script that had been made with those men in that prison to a different facility with women. And the women said, oh, we totally want to do this and we're going to do it even better than the men. And the women were really excited about incorporating dance into what they did. And there were a couple of them who ended up serving as the choreographers for the show. And they got really, really excited about using the rhythms of the play and playing with them in some ways that the men had not had the space to do in part because they were actually writing the script when the men were performing it. And the women had a script at hand that they, they could then expand on in some really interesting ways. So the, I think there are a lot of people who would assume that something like hip hop, which reads more working class and black would automatically be more appealing to people in prison 
And the truth is that we've locked up 2.3 million people in the United States and their tastes in theater and music and everything else in the world are just as diverse as any population that large would be in the rest of the world. So I, my personal opinion is that any kind of art making process works best when you really listen to the people who are making it and for whom the work is being rendered, that they should be the drivers of, of what they want to do. And, and that's not to say that both versions of Hip Hop Hamlet were incredibly successful. They were great performances and the people who were involved in those casts were very proud of the work that they did and really glad that they had gotten to do the work. Um, but in my own process, what I prefer to do is to let the people inside the facilities be the drivers of what it is they want to create and see in the world. You quote a former prison warden in one of your chapter epigraphs saying, quote, I was totally gobsmacked at the talent of many of the prisoners, but I shouldn't have been. Music, drama, visual arts, and all the creative aspects of life are neglected in disadvantaged areas, and families cannot afford to pay for private classes. This means that poor people's talents are untapped, not that they don't have any. Still, it was a revelation that men who had so little going for them could have such skills, end quote. So we have here this interesting shift from initial surprise to a deeper realization about the plethora of untapped talent that exists in many of our most neglected communities. What does this revelation tell us about the contemporary art world and how it is partly composed of certain forms of exclusion and neglect? My other area of study before I really got into the prison work, because I didn't for many years know that people did theater in prisons, um, was to work on Chicana and Chicano theater in the, the southwestern United States. And Luis Valdez is one of the most famous playwrights who, who came out of that theater movement, which started in the 1960s along with the Chicano movement itself. And somebody asked him once, is it political theater if a Chicano paints a, a flower, paints a rose? And he said... Yes, because a Chicano had time to paint a rose. And I, I think there's something inherent in the ways that we have, have set up what high art is, that people who are artists are people who have the time to create this incredible work. And despite the fact that really talented, amazing people like James Baldwin have lived incredibly difficult working class lives where they fought for the time and space to create their art and still managed to do something really remarkable. We often don't give those people enough recognition while they are alive and actively making art. Um, I think that sense of surprise that somebody in prison could be an artist is a, a deeply ingrained cultural thing that, that we have about class in many different parts of the world. That quote from a prison warden that you read is from a, a, a really lovely man named John Lonergan, who was for many years the warden of a notorious prison for men called Mountjoy in Dublin, Ireland. And uh, he instituted a robust theater program during the years that he was warden and was really blown away, as he says in that quote, by the level of artistic work that people were creating inside the prison. And a lot of the folks that, that I met in my travels and research told me that being in prison was the first time that they'd ever had access to arts programming or instruction or were encouraged in any way to participate in the arts. And many of them have mused within my hearing about what their lives would have been like if somebody had told them that they could be an artist before they landed in prison, what their lives might have become if they had had the level of engagement and training and support that they've gotten through a prison arts program. So I, I wish that arts funding in, in public education was not always the first thing to go every time a round of budget cuts comes. I wish that we gave more space to to recognize the talent and, and energy and creativity 
of people from all walks of life because art in my opinion is a human right it's it's not something that should only be pursued by the folks who can afford an mfa in higher education Jumping right off of this, one thing you look at are instances where the professional theater world and the prison world interact with professional playwrights not only coming into direct, but actually producing new plays with incarcerated persons. How do some of these interactions work and how does the context of a prison transform the production process? There's been some really, really interesting work done by theater professionals who have decided to enter prison spaces. Um, For me, the most important aspect of prison theater work in terms of of planning this kind of program is a serious and long-term commitment from whoever is going in from the outside world to pursue this work with folks inside. So um, it is, it's not, uncommon for people in the free world to do theatrical productions where you come together for the space of just one play and then you separate and go your own way and and try a different production with other people. In prison, folks are are bound together by the limitations of their geography and their inability to move somewhere else. And they need a kind of of long-term stability to continue to engage in the arts. So if, if professionals in the theater world are going to professionalize the folks inside, they have to help give them the stability to make the gains that an artist training anywhere else could have by bouncing around to different places, which is not an option for people in prison. So there's been really beautiful work done by some very famous people like Eve Ensler, who's the playwright who got really famous for writing the vagina monologues. Um, She did a workshop, I think, for seven years with women in a New York prison. Uh, There have been really extraordinary playwrights who have attached themselves for just one production to a company um, that is long running so that the playwright is not the person who's fully responsible for maintaining the longevity of the theater production work in the prison, but they're able to make a meaningful interjection by partnering with people who provide long-term stability for the folks inside. And um, again, we're in the middle of this global pandemic that makes it impossible for us to do the work physically inside prisons in the ways that that people have for so many, many, many years. but the Prison Performing Arts Company, who I was talking about a little bit earlier, was in the process of creating a production based on Margaret Atwood's novel, Hagseed, at the time that the world shut down and we couldn't go into prisons anymore. And so I hope that um, that, that production, and Mar- Margaret Atwood was directly involved, I hope that that will get revived and actually be able to come to fruition when the world is safe enough again. In the final chapter, you explore the odd relationships that prisons have with hope, although it's definitely a more challenging understanding of hope that you have in mind. And you quote the religious scholar Vincent Lloyd, who writes, quote, when hope does not result in struggle, it is misunderstood. Connecting back to earlier questions we've been developing about prison performance and social change, what is hope here? Hope is what keeps us alive in really difficult situations. I've been thinking about this a lot in the time of the global pandemic when so many people are experiencing so much pain and loss and uh, struggles that have become far more widespread than they were before the pandemic. The pandemic made clear the ways in which people were suffering before, right? So, and and prisons do this for us as well. All of the problems that you have in prisons, you have in the free world, but prisons make them more stark and more visible. And the pandemic is doing the same thing. So in this time where people are facing illness, death, confinement, loss of economic stability, loss of familiarity of the way that things used to work, uh, loss of access to other people were being isolated and Um, and really forced to look at some very painful things all the time, 
we have to have hope to get through these moments. And people in prison understand this much more intimately. They have been in this kind of situation, though um, the situation in prison is much more dire now than it was pre-pandemic. People are dying in extraordinary numbers inside prisons because disease transmission there is very high and very difficult to prevent. But we have a lot to learn from the folks who have survived through the extraordinary pain and difficulty of incarceration. And the way that I see people in prison practicing the hope that keeps them alive is to remain connected to the kinds of struggles that really matter to them. Struggles to regain their families and their freedom and their ability to contribute something positive to the outside world. Hope is feeling like you might be able to create meaning and beauty and community in a world that is trying to take all of that away from you at the cost of, of many people's very lives. And I, I think the theater work in prison in particular enables us to do that with a sense of being connected to others, with a sense of joy, with a sense of agency, that with our voices and our bodies and nothing else, if that's all that we have left to us, we can make a kind of magic that transports people out of their present reality, that allows them to live imaginatively in a different space for the brief hours that we strut and walk upon the stage. <laughs> and we, we could do with more of that in the difficult world that we face right now. Jumping right off of this, you look at different forms hope can manifest, such as the hope to be a part of something or the hope for a happy ending, all of which take on very particular meanings for incarcerated persons. How does prison theater function as an expression of this sort of hope and become a pillar or starting point in broader efforts to resist the hopelessness of the carceral system? One of the stories that I so love to tell that appears in the hope chapter of the book is about these women in a prison in Brazil who were doing a production of Romeo and Juliet. And uh, the, the Brazilian theater makers from this company, which is called Teatro na Prisao, which literally translates to theater in prison, um, they were not doing with Shakespeare what I saw happening in the rest of the world. In the English-speaking world, Shakespeare's language is untouchable. It is pristine. It is to be um, honored and revered. Even if you're going to transform it into something like hip-hop, you start with the original Shakespeare and you really dig into the language. In Brazil, a lot of the women in this prison were... Uh, they didn't have that relationship to Shakespeare and they didn't have the script. So some of them were illiterate and the people in the theater company that was coming in from the federal university in Rio really wanted all of the women to have kind of equal access to the play itself. So they decided that they would use the story and the characters of Romeo and Juliet and the plot, but they would ask the women to improvise. So they would, they introduced the play scene by scene in chronological order and said, okay, we need somebody to play Mercutio and we need somebody else to play this guy. And they would cast all the roles in the play and say, okay, here's what happens in this scene. These two people are fighting and one of them dies and this is how it goes. And they would improvise the language based on an outline of the plot. And as they developed the play, which took quite a while, many, many months of, of improvisational exercise, when they got to the point where the young lovers die, they absolutely threw a fit and said, we are not going to do this play in this way. I don't know who this Shakespeare guy is, and I don't care, but he does not get to take away from us the young lovers that we have come to believe in and to love. And we're sick of the gang warfare that we see all around us. And that's what this play is showing us yet again. We're not going to let them die. And so they, they changed the ending of the play and, uh, and they did so quite brilliantly. So in the original, Juliet takes this sleeping potion. She looks like she's dead. She lays down in the tomb. Romeo comes and finds her and is so grief stricken that he, stabs himself to death. He commits suicide in the tomb and there. And then she wakes up, realizes that he's dead and then kills herself for real to join him in the afterlife. End of play. In 
the Brazilian version, what happens is that Juliet takes her sleeping drought. She goes to sleep, looks like she's dead. Romeo comes and sees her, thinks she's dead, but instead of killing himself, he gets rip-roaring drunk and falls down, uh, passes out in the tomb. Juliet wakes up and thinks that he's dead. And then as she's like weeping over his body, she smells the alcohol on his breath and realizes that he's alive. So she jumps up and starts kicking him. And then he wakes up really angry because somebody just kicked him awake and they start yelling at each other. And then they realize that they're both alive, that they've both made it through this incredible tragedy. And then they hold a Baile Funky dance party in the tomb. And Baile Funky is like, the kind of hip hop music and dance that comes out of the favelas, which are the really struggling neighborhoods in Brazil that a lot of the women in this prison had come from. And, and when I talked to the women in the prison about it, it, they said that this was, this was their play. It belonged to them and they needed the hope that these young people could live through it. They needed the promise of another day and uh, Agosto Boal, who's a very famous Brazilian theater maker who started a whole school of theater making called Theater of the Oppressed that is used around the world and especially in prisons. Um, Boal has taught us that in order to create a better future, we have to be able to rehearse that and that the theater is a place where we can imagine how the world could be better than it actually is today. And that's what these women were doing. They had the hope to live on because they had practiced it in the theater. That might be one of the best endings I've ever gotten while recording one of these. So thank you for that. Um, so as a final question, we always like to ask, uh, what, if anything, are you working on now? Well, I am very much at the beginning of a new process for what I hope will be both a play and a a popular nonfiction book. Um, I've been thinking a lot about the people I love who have come home from prison and what the world often fails to offer them and the potential for what the world could offer them. So a lot of the folks that we really care about at the Prison Creative Arts Project who come home from prison are looking for stable employment and a job that doesn't have to be all about prison and a, a, a home life, you know, a, a family and community that sees them as something more than whatever it was that sent them to prison. And that's a really hard thing for people to find, both because we live in a moment of extraordinary economic insecurity and because there's so much prejudice in housing applications and job applications, even educational applications against people who have a criminal record. And I want to think about the fact that we have all of these cultural performances for getting rid of people. We have trials, we have imprisonment, we slay people in the press, we convince folks that certain people are untouchable and never to be dealt with again. And we have very few public rituals, if any, for welcoming people home, for saying, you have grown and become somebody who is a good citizen you are someone we welcome as our neighbor, as our family member, as our coworker, as a part of our community. And yet there are people who've managed it, right? So Martha Stewart is one of my, my favorite examples of this. She actually very much got her life back after prison. And if anything became even more successful um, after what she had been through. And of course, Martha is extraordinary for all different kinds of reasons. She's very wealthy, very privileged, had a lot of stuff, and she's white, and she's a woman. She had many, many things going for her that the, the typical stigmas of criminality don't work on her in quite the same way. But I want to look at other people um, also. I want to look at people like Martha Stewart, like Marion Barry, who was the mayor of D.C., who had a drug problem and went to prison for it and then became the mayor of D.C. yet again. Uh, there's a, a drag queen named Latrice Royale uh, who went to prison and to a men's prison in Florida and is a black man who performs in drag as a black woman. Um, that, that extraordinary movement in his life came from going out of prison into a drag scene, 
getting onto RuPaul's Drag Race and becoming famous and and then being chosen as Miss Congeniality of the season that he was on of that reality television program and becoming one of the most beloved and highest paid drag queens in the United States today. So what does it mean for people who are navigating vastly different experiences of culture and resource and access to things and people that enables certain folks to be really successful to acknowledge their incarceration publicly and for that not to be the most important thing about them. So the famous examples that I've just recounted will be a kind of backdrop for the real work of what I hope this book and this play will be based on, which will have a lot more to do with kind of a multi-site ethnography of talking to people about their experiences coming home from prison and talking to the people around them who've accepted them and embraced them and supported them in in a new life. And so the, the book project is tentatively called Welcome Home, Martha Stewart, Cultivating a Culture of Freedom. Yeah, that sounds absolutely excellent. So Ashley Lucas, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. I'm honored. And I, I think this is a wonderful podcast. <laughs> thank you. <laughs>